Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. And now, here he is, the man who as a teen received four stars from Star Search just for being himself. Teal. <laughs> yeah, my, my old friend Ed McMahon. That's right. Yeah, yeah, my old friend Ed McMahon. It's hard to get four stars. It's hard to get four stars. When you when you first started, I thought maybe I was getting four Michelin stars, but I'll, I'll take Star Search. <laughs> for your, uh, for your for, great culinary skills. Yes, for the hot dogs I'm making for dinner. <laughs> ah, hey, everybody. <laughs> glad to hear you out there in the podcast land, or glad that you're hearing us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the show. <laughs> it's been a weird start. I don't want to get into what it took us to get us to this. Point. It's been a weird start to the show. Yep. But we're here. Yeah. We're here. Uh, We've yep. seen some stuff. That's right. Uh, StuffWeSeen.com, by the way, is the site where you can get all our podcasts. And uh, certainly you can also drop us a line there uh, to Jim and Teal at uh, StuffWeSeen.com. And uh, tell us whatever you feel like telling us. But uh, we've got a show. We're going to talk about a few different uh, films today. And the first, we're going to just go into uh, the last episode. I mentioned I was taking a pilgrimage, a, a trek, to see one of these BFI 250 films that seemed like it was going to be almost impossible to find otherwise. Well, well it, doesn't, uh, movie. it doesn't exist digitally, does it? Well, I heard a rumor that it might have been released this year on a French Blu-ray with two other of this director's films, but I don't know. I haven't got confirmation on that. <laughs> Interesting, huh? So this is a film yeah. that I, I sort of became obsessed with trying to track down, but you found that it was actually playing in Massachusetts. Yes, and I, we're, we're speaking for those who did not hear the last podcast. We're talking about director, uh, the late director, Med Hondo, and his film, West Indies, The Fugitive Slaves of Liberty. I, I made a mistake on the last program. I called it The Future Slaves of Liberty, but it's The Fugitive Slaves of Liberty. <laughs> okay, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't even catch that. Uh, yeah, well, I did in the editing. I was like, oops. <laughs> this Med Hondo, he has two films on the 250. That and Soleo. Yeah. And they Which were, I have not seen yet. Okay, you haven't seen yet. And uh, it just sounded like such a fascinating film, this West Indies, that, uh, and, and, but so few people have seen it. You know, there's hardly any reviews of it out there. Uh, so it's very hard to find information on. But I, I, Med Hondo, I think, uh, later in his life, worked at Harvard. Was uh, he did some guest lecturing there, and maybe some guest, you know, in residence kind of artist guy. Uh, so they have his archive, I, I assume, and have done some restoration on this. I'm I, I'm just so jealous that you saw this movie. I can't <laughs> even believe it. So go ahead and tell me how this was, and I can just sit here and cry because I didn't get to go with you. Okay, well, so. It is true. They hold, I guess, the master print. Uh, For a while, they were releasing a 35 millimeter print of it from the archive to, like, say, the Film Forum for a show and other places. They would they would always say print courtesy of the Harvard Film Archive. Okay, it was a 35 millimeter print. But if you know, I can imagine this. You know, it costs a lot of money for print, so they wanted to preserve it and they did a restoration on it and they did a beautiful like 4k restoration oh digital restoration okay cool they did i went to the film archive the harvard film archive uh, to see this presentation uh, a week ago or actually i guess it's been a couple weeks now and the first thing i will just tell you is talk about state of the art presentation there's you know there's digital presentations that you yeah. see in theaters but then you've got the harvard film archive they're priding themselves on giving you a flawless presentation right and i'm trying to think of a time where i saw a 4k digital projection of a you know an older film right. that looked as good as what i saw i was shocked i thought it was going to be like you know maybe a faded print that they did the best that they could do to with restore. some splices Sometimes here and there and yeah Something like that. And when you sometimes see these prints and criterion, you know, there's definitely flaws, especially from a 1977-78 movie. That was made and produced in Africa, right? I, I, I don't know where they had their film processed, but I don't know. I don't <laughs> believe that. What country was it in? 
I can't remember, but um, it, well, I mean, it, it may have been, um, it, and it was the most expensive film at the time in that country. Yeah, and it, uh, I mean, it's just, I don't think they had a very mature film industry at at the time. I, that was the thing. The movie looks, it absolutely looks incredible. I was shocked at that. Um, it shot like a shot in thirty five, and. Again, the sort of backstory on this, it, the entire film is shot on a recreated slave ship that they created inside an old, um, what are those French cars? Uh, Renault? Yeah, no, I think it was an old Renault factory. Okay. All right, so it's almost like this huge hangar. And the best part is, is that as if almost like it's a musical play or something. Right. Uh, that you're like in a theater experience. They show that it's in a hangar. It's not like they're trying to hide that. Oh, cool. Okay. So, yeah. So, it's, you're aware that they're putting on a show. Right. You get, you see the surroundings, especially at the beginning as it sort of takes you in. But the whole movie is shot with these very gliding, exact, on-tracks, um, moving camera shots um, that are so precise and fluid. Um, it's not some kind of handheld thing, and especially right. where we're in the age of the steady cam, where you know people are moving all around the steady cam, and it, that kind of bothers me at times. Yeah, this is not like that. Um, so you're getting a, already a, that these things shocked me. But a couple of things before I even just tell you about this film is that I got there early and I was waiting for you know things to happen and it wasn't like it was going to be a sellout i wasn't worried about getting a ticket um, and i'm just kind of minding my own business i'm looking on my phone and this uh, tall guy kind of comes by and he just says oh do you work here and, and i'm like no i'm just waiting you know for the movie and he's like oh is this you know what's the, what is this film and i'm like trying to explain to him and what i'm doing here and pretty quickly discover that this is a um it is not a uh, person who uh, is from America, right? Right, but he's got a very good he's got a very good uh, like command of the English language. Let's right. just say, and we start talking, right? And I'm telling him about the show, the stuff we've seen, and why I'm here seeing this movie. And uh, this guy, he's a French student. He's okay. from Paris. His name is Benjamin um, Hebra, and he is like an advanced. Uh, math mathematician oh cool and he was doing a, a six-month internship at Dana-Farber where he is kind of studying a little bit like cancer and advanced medicine oh wow and he's trying to determine whether he's going to go into more med tech and advanced mathematics or is he going to go to medical school after this oh interesting okay so that already was fascinating this was his second day in America <laughs> he had just gotten to Boston the day before. He's a big film enthusiast, and he was looking, you know, in, in, online or in the papers to figure out where the different movie places are. And he found, well, there's this Harvard Film Archive. They show movies, and so he just showed up <laughs> he there. Showed up. <laughs> and he had started poking around, like he was just walking around. If there was a door open, he'd open it to see what was going on. You know, he's just a curious guy. And uh, so we, we just started talking. And here's the amazing thing. Not only, like, again, you know, I, I speak a little French, but right. this kid, this guy's uh, command of the English language was amazing. Even so that, like, he didn't really even seem to have that much of an accent. Uh, you know, wow. it was very yeah. easy to understand what he was talking about. We started getting into the whole BFI 250, which he didn't know about. Right. And so I was, he was like, what, what's the link? And he wanted to know that. And he wanted to know, like, you know, what's our show? And uh, we started talking about French movies because now I've seen like a thousand. Of right. Them yeah. From you've seen, you've seen the classic French films now. And he was talking about all these movies he loves. And I was like, well, he's like, well, what movies are on there? And I was telling him, like, you know, suddenly the mother and the whore popped in. Yeah. And he was like, oh, mother and the whore. Famous, really famous in, in, in France. Interesting. And he started talking about some of his favorite, like, film directors. He loves Romer. And um, one of the things that he, one of the directors he really loves is Joseph Losey. Uh, interesting. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, so we had this, like, yeah. suddenly I had over an hour to kill before this movie, but suddenly I have somebody to talk to who's really interesting and, and, and uh, loves movies, and so we're having a good old time. And then he went off to get something to eat, but then, then uh, you know, you could get, well, after we could get tickets, yeah. and he decided he wanted to see it, and it was like a bonus because here's a French movie, and he wouldn't even have to read the subtitles. Ah, you know, um, and I was telling him about all the different movie houses that still play films mm -hmm. and that, you know, the Somerville Theater and the Coolidge Corner and the Brattle, all these things that are around there. So he was getting all excited. And um, then, the, you know, the theater did not start out very busy, but, you know, it's not a huge auditorium, right. but it was pretty packed by the time it started. So I was happy to see that. Yeah, that's nice. Because I'm like, this is such, you know, I wanted to tell people who didn't know in this room, like how rare it is to see this movie. Um, and then... The movie started and, you know, my challenge with the BFI list is I go through all these films and, you know, what's actually great versus what I've been right. told is great by certain critics. Yeah, sometimes your view doesn't line up with the other critics who put yeah. Avengers Infinity Endgame on the list. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> well... I don't know. I mean, part of it, yes. When you get to see a film in the theater, you can have a different experience. Right. And I yeah. recognize that. But I also have seen enough. I've been around the block enough to know that within the first few minutes of a movie, I know whether it's like going to be something or not. And this movie, without question, it is one of the great films. If anything, the crime is that the movie should be higher up on the list. It's possibly one of, the, I feel like, the greatest achievements and direction of a movie that I've seen. Wow. Uh, because just what you get on screen and and how it all moves and like the sort of ingenuity behind the story that he that he tells so what yeah I, i'm not worried about spoilers here so yeah i mean i won't get it to spoil it's just it is a weird sort of amalgamation of a musical mm -hmm. um there are a few musical numbers but there's like almost more dance numbers uh going on and there's like three levels of the slave ship and you have like characters like way on the very very tippity top mm -hmm. there are these aristocrats and oh. they come in they're almost like a greek chorus if you will and they and sometimes like you know they they play different versions of themselves depending on the year of the history that we're talking oh, about oh oh fascinating and how does it does it move chronologically or does it move back and forth in time no it starts out sort of in present day where um the French aristocrat government, they're, they're worried that the West Indies is now too populated with the wrong sorts. Oh. <laughs> that, that the problem that they created right. when they brought uh, sugar, like the sugar manufacturing to the West Indies, that now it's overpopulated in the wrong sorts. And of course, they want sort of the West Indies to be their kind of playground for right. more of the elites. And so the solution would be that we need to get all of these um, West Indies people. Well, we should get them on a plane or a boat or whatever we have to Paris where they can assimilate. And really <laughs> what they can be is they're, they're the future slaves, you see, because right. uh, Paris and France, it's all about liberty. Like there's all these like the slogans of, yeah, of yeah, France yeah. about liberty and and the idea is that they can become the domestic workers, the the people that do all the shit jobs <laughs> that you don't want, right? So that they've got this, uh, they got a, a sort of a puppet regime set up in the West okay. Indies, and they've got, uh, you know, they got their, I guess their their token guy who's going to be, you know, sort of their their government stooge right. in charge of the West Indies, and it starts off with this hilarious election where everybody's voting for that guy. They got all their people to like vote for this guy right. and they all line up and they're popping their, uh, their vote into the box. See, they've got the just free elections. They get to go in <laughs> and then you cut this reverse side and you see for every vote that goes in, they're stuffing the ballot on the other side with their guy. So he always wins. And there's this awesome musical number where they're attracting the people in with all the pleasures of Paris. So the film has some humor. Oh, it's it's hilarious, but it's also so biting. And then, right. of course, you go back in to the history of like when they showed up in the West Indies and how they saw that this was perfect for 
sugar plantations, but then we need to bring slaves in right to do the work and then there's you know you really get to see like the middle passage and all these people being you know kind of put in chains and on a boat and then you get the whole going you know to paris and then it's like modern days and all these people fighting whether that we want to stay in in the west indies we don't want to go versus those that think they're gonna have a better life going to paris but then uh, finding out that they cannot get like no one will um, rent a house or apartment to them and so basically they're kind of left and turned into having to live in slums of paris right and so there's a a very interesting depiction of the of the whole immigration debate that rages on today right 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 yeah this is uh because then the parisians are like what what are all these immigrants doing here we hate them wow this this just sounds incredible it's this movie's balls to the wall like this guy it, it, the movie has so much to say about what's happening in the world today um parallels to america and it, it, it's absolute genius. I mean, I think it's honestly, it's one of the most fantastic movies I've ever seen. <laughs> so it's, it, it, it's probably going on your top hundred. It's absolutely going on my top hundred. Top yep. 50. Maybe. Okay. Um, you know, again, I haven't uh, whittled it down, but I did look the other day now that I'm getting close. To- <laughs> it's definitely up there for you. Yeah. And, and the thing is, again, the, the, the movie, there's a thing about editing. And I, I kind of thought about this towards the end of the film was that, Whatever, so much is going on, but he he makes sense of it all as it's happening. So you're not really, you know, you're not confused. And I realized, I don't even know when the camera's cutting. Like, it's it's so well edited that I don't notice that it's edited. You know what I mean? You just, you're immersed on this boat. You're immersed on this boat, which is a set that is used for multi, um, multi places, multi right times different levels there's class structure to the boat and the characters uh, actors are playing different characters throughout med hondo is in the movie and he's got different characters that he's playing and i i like left again i, I was just stunned and exhilarated by yeah. the movie but i also thought that man you know if Lin-Manuel Miranda is looking for another project. <laughs> he should see this film, the adaption that he could do and oh, do something like this on Broadway. It could be absolutely sensational. I mean, this movie, because he could add some songs and things, but I right. just felt like this was a great movie. I mean, this is why I wanted to take this challenge because I knew I'd find films like this. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> why do you think uh, this film has been lost, basically? It's a mystery. I have no idea, but I mean, I would love for this to get wider notice. I think that it, it, I mean, again, there was a a woman I was listening as the people were, um, after the credits, I was hearing people and there was a woman behind and there's there's this, there's a scene that really kind of talks about, uh, you know, these, these fugitive slaves like Liberty that kind of talking about, we need to fight for freedom and equality and they go through a history of talking about all of the different people like in like in america and other things that led slave revolts oh wow and this woman behind me was talking to the person that she was with and she said that you know when they mentioned this name and that name amongst the people that led slavery she almost broke into tears and I just thought, wow, you know, like this movie's working on so many levels right. for so many different people, uh, depending on your background and your race and culture. Um, so I just, I mean, I think I actually led the applause chant at the end because <laughs> I was just like, I was just bursting into applause with this movie. And did you talk to the French guy afterwards? Uh, very, but he had to go. He had a, okay. like a roommate or something that needed him back, and he he had a bike that was he was going to be biking back to Boston, um, which is only a few miles away for right. uh, in a bike. But uh, but I did stay for a few minutes. I had a long ride back myself. Yeah, yeah. Here's the amazing thing: at the end, they had a brief documentary. They they restored from footage and some real tape, and there's I guess some silent gaps where there wasn't stuff that right. they could use for tape. That showed the construction of the slave ship. Oh, cool. When you see that, you see how massive it is and also how there's different parts that you would never know. You just think that it was like a whole wooden ship they transported in there that are made of styrofoam. And you see a person like carving a masthead out of styrofoam and stuff. Wow. 
it was so cool to have that additional element and, and you know just really maybe appreciate um, a theatrical presentation yeah. a place like the harvard film archive offering this up and uh you know it just reminded me that boy i wish i could have seen more of these bfi movies in the theater yeah now that was the other thing so we've talked a little bit about your watching methods and how you break things up sometimes do you think how much of the, the this experience lends itself to uh, an appreciation of the film versus breaking it up? Like, does breaking it up hurt hurt your impression of the film a little bit, or is it just because those films can't engage you that you you're like, okay, I just it's a slog through. I got to do it a little bit at a time. Well, I mean, I don't always have the time to watch an entire movie right. with all the distractions at home anyway. And and I can't say that I would have ended up watching this all in one shot, but I know that I would have watched huge chunks of it and I would have got wrapped up because yeah. it was so engaging. I mean, it's just not boring. And again, I see a lot of these minimalist movies on this right. list where shots go for like seven or eight minutes at a time and you're just waiting for a cut. <laughs> and then something like this, I don't even know how long the shots were because I couldn't, I wasn't paying attention anymore other than I'm like, I'm watching Bravo uh, filmmaking right. <laughs> going on here from the cinematography wow. to the sets of the costumes to just the idea and the approach. And that's where I'm like landing on that this director, Med Hondo, really, he, he, I got to see some more of his stuff and I'm excited to see Soleil because, uh, and I could have, by the way, if I right. didn't yeah, have it was a to double go feature, driving right? back, yeah. I could have, yeah, I could have seen that. But now I, I, as I only have about, you know, I only have 20 more movies to go, that'll be in the last batch. Right. And that's the one I guess I'm excited for because I know that he's not going to let me down. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. I, I just can't wait to see this and I'm leaving it to you to personally evangelize uh, <laughs> to Criterion to get them to uh, uh, somehow make a deal with Harvard to get this on the channel. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't. I'm not trying to make you jealous. Honestly, I just, I'm horribly jealous. This I, I read <laughs> about this film. This is like one of the ones on the 250 that I'm really excited about. It, you you have reason to be now that I. <laughs> now well, okay, good. Yeah, I mean, if you had gone and you know shrugged, uh, given it a shrug, I, I probably uh, wouldn't be so excited. But now I really am. Yeah, and I was prepared. See, the thing is, I went on this journey because I didn't know I'd be able to see the film any other way. Right. Um, and I'm try I'm a completionist here, so I was fully prepared to be let down. Yeah. And it wasn't even a pleasant surprise. It was like a shock to the system how good this movie was. Well, because you've been let down a number of times on this list. So, <laughs> oh, well, I haven't since then. I've been let down. Uh, I could tell you about a movie called India Song <laughs> that would uh, you tear your eyeballs out trying to finish watching. Um, but uh, so, anyways, you know, I'm again. It's so funny. The, I am not um, opposed to weird. Uh, experimental movies. I mean, I love David Lynch. Yeah. And I love filmmakers that kind of wrestle with the traditional medium of film. Yeah. And maybe it's a minimalist approach and maybe it's not your traditional script. And there was a film, uh, you know, when uh, the Brandon Cronenberg movie. Yes. Uh, that came out. Uh, Infinity Pool. Infinity Pool. Yeah. I saw that in the theater with my wife. Yeah. And before that, there was a trailer for a movie. And it was it, it was like only a square format, 133. Yeah. And it looked like it was shot like on just 16 millimeter. And it had this weird feel of like something from the early 70s that somebody unearthed. Right. And it looked totally bizarre. And it, maybe it was a horror movie. Maybe it was folk horror. I don't know what it was. But <laughs> the trailer, it had a strange title. <laughs> the trailer did not really. Uh, it just looked like a freak out. I can't imagine making a trailer for this movie. Like I. <laughs> well, so it's this movie. It was called Ennis Men, which was hard at the time to remember. Well, what was yeah. that weird movie? And it's like, this is going to come out in theaters. I got to see it. And we waited for it to come out. We couldn't yeah. wait for this movie. And uh, so finally. Uh, my wife and I got to see Ennis Men, which is a Cornish film, Cornwall, uh, by a director named Mark Jenkins. Oh, okay. I was wondering. I, I, I did I did no research on this guy. I, I know I, I assumed <laughs> that you did and you'd fill me in today on the show because I, I went into both these films totally blind. 
Oh, you're jumping the gun because yes, we're going to talk. So we're going to talk about this director, Mark Jenkin, and he is from West Cornwall, and he is a professor of film practice at Falmouth University in the UK. And he's done a lot of short movies. And his first film from 2019 is a film called Bait. And it was an award-winning film in the UK. And it kind of took people by storm just because of sort of the really old-school approach to it. And then his follow-up is this movie, Ennis Men. Ennis Men is the introductory film for me. And then I quickly, after seeing this, said, I got to see this Bait movie. And I told you, let's let's watch it. Yeah. Watch these movies because uh, we should talk about this guy. Um, and so uh, I saw Ennis Men first with my wife. And I will tell you, audience, first of all, that there are a lot of people, traditional storytelling people, that are not going to like this movie. <laughs> yeah. um, but I did. Um, I kind of loved it. And it's okay that it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, it's sort of in a weird way. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure. You can kind of make up what you think <laughs> you, of you the can. story. It's, uh, I was thinking about, uh, while I was watching, I was thinking about Selena and Julie go, go boating. Okay. Which I think there's some similarities in terms of narrative structure and uh, the idea that, yeah, you kind of have to put it together a little bit. But I was also thinking about your read on Selena Julie uh, with her being the child and stuff. And I started thinking about I, how curious I was to hear your interpretation of this movie because, uh, <laughs> because I gave up at, at one point. I'll, I'll read you my notes. Let's see. Uh, well, this is just poetry. <laughs> a little bit. I have an entire page of notes, and finally, I'm like, I just give up. <laughs> I, 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 well, I, it's I, like I give up on trying to make sense. Environmental horror. It's environmental horror. It's maybe a little supernatural. It's uh, bio. There's some body horror there, but it's well, <laughs> but it's not a horror film by any stretch of the imagination. It's a meditation, if anything. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely in a weird way. It's a continuation of his work on the first film, yes. Bait, which of course I watched afterwards. However, it, it more spiritual wise. But what was great about seeing this one first is when we went and saw the second one. The lead actress in Ennis Men, yes, um, is an actress named uh, Mary Woodvine, yes, and she's the daughter of a famous UK actor named John Woodvine, oh. and he plays this preacher. That's in Ennis Men. Oh. He's also, yeah, he's also in Bait, very briefly. But here's the thing. You know who John Woodvine was? He played Dr. J.S. Hirsch in American Werewolf in London. Oh, wow. Oh, you did some yes. research. This is cool. I, I mean, I did, of course. Yeah, oh, and, and she and she's amazing. And she's amazing in this, yes. In, in both films, yeah. She's in Bait. So when we saw her in Bait, we started to think, we started to tie the two films together and said that this movie, Ennis Men, what happens is she, <laughs> with all of the different times, she gets zapped in out of time and she becomes a different character in Bait, which is modern. She gets pushed into the future, <laughs> if you will, because Ennis Men takes place in 1973. Yeah, and, and, and Bait takes place now-ish. I mean, they have cell phones. It, it does. Uh, yeah. No, it, it takes place now. It's just that, so here's the thing, and this is why we're going to kind of like talk about, we're gonna, I want to talk about this guy's process. He shoots his movies. Maybe someday in the future he'll shoot something different, but he, he believes in just the techniques of movie making with film. Right. He has a hand-cranked Bolex camera, <laughs> and he shoots his movies on that, Okay. Which is why sometimes the dialogue is out of sync. Well, no, the entire, both movies, it, they're all post-synced. Oh, Everything. okay, okay. I was kind of suspecting that, yeah. But so this is why this guy's such a craftsman, because knowing that, right? Bait, so like for people who are first why might say, well, this sounds a little weird because it's all post. And sometimes the sound effects are a little bit louder. And yeah. it's just like, it, it's, it's such a weird experience. And it's part of his whole kind of aesthetic but i was amazed when i watched bait 
at just how much dialogue is in the movie, and the sinking is better than a lot of other like Italian movies that oh, try to do I the same to- thing. I would totally agree. Yeah, because I, you know, I wondered. I, I thought maybe some of them were ADR, but but it no, it I I bought it for the most part that that was the the entire movie of Bait was post synced, and the thing is he got vo- vocal performances. I think are really hard. Yeah, when it's post synced, but he had the actors actually doing their voices, and that helps, you know. In a way, you can <laughs> you can get a better take that way, right? You could do endless audio takes, um, but if you're shooting 16 millimeter film, you're not just running film. And uh, what, what do you got? A hundred feet, maybe? I'm gonna get because this is this kind of goes back to our film school days when we shot with non-sync cameras. Um, even though you yourself you had a Crystal Motor synced 16 millimeter camera, yes, you did. I still and, have. Uh, And that made it possible to do some sync sound. But here was the trick. We knew that non-synced cameras could sort of hold dialogue for a few seconds. So you could get away with like a few words here and there and just adjust it. Yeah. But he has a hand-cranked Bolex. So that's never going to be very... um, No, it's always running at different speeds. And you can see it running. Now... Uh, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'll give you some details because I'm going to know I'm going to answer all your questions. All right. So maybe I'll answer them because this, because this is what fascinated me because you know what? In a weird way, bait fascinated me more, right? Because his production was a little bit better on NS men, but he had a fixed lens for bait, right? And he hardly moved the camera and no shot could be longer than 27 seconds because that's how long the wind would last. Oh, wow. So not a single shot in that movie is longer than 27 seconds. Okay, that's fascinating. He also shoots at a three to one ratio of film because it costs, he just, it only, he has to be very economical. Right. So he knows what he wants and he knows kind of what he wants to cut together. And again, it's all economics, but right. um, that's how he shot bait. Now with Ennis Men, same camera. But he put a zoom lens on it. It also looks like he cleaned it. No, no, no. We're going to get to that. <laughs> okay. We're going to get to that too. Okay. Right. You're going to get to that. So this is this is going to freaking blow you away. All right. First of all, the look of Ennis Men is just dreamy and delightful. This color stock. Yeah. The colors are, there's the red raincoat, the yellow raincoat, the blue ocean and sky. Uh, the colors are just so, oh, and her blue eyes are so, uh, vibrant. It's just the colors just leap out of this thing. Uh, the blue shutters on the house, the whole thing, the, the colors are so vibrant and so saturated in a way that I I don't think it's possible outside of 16 millimeter film, frankly. It, it wasn't an ectochrome. I mean, it was actually um, negative, but I think he was like shooting a lot of 500 ASA. So that's okay. already pretty grainy. Yeah. And he's doing something. This is so great. We, we mentioned at the end of last episode that I watched Red Desert, yeah. Antonioni's. Yes. And you did too. I did too. Yeah. And one, one of the things that he did was he shot with a zoom lens and he kind of pulled it zoomed in a lot um so that there was no depth of field and it does this other thing too where it makes it look in red desert it looks like there's planes as opposed to so it's like the actors are on one plane and then the background is on another plane and and they look like they're separated that's what I love is like, it almost looks like it had this artificial look like, is there like rear screen projection or something? Yeah. And I think that that adds to the weird uneasiness on distortion of the movie. And it is a weird, uneasy movie. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 like I said, I was, I really spent some time trying to put it together. And it, so there's this routine that this character is in. Well, she's observing, right, environmental life on the Stone Island. That's what Ennis Men means, by the way, Stone Island. Yeah, so she is taking some readings, some temperature readings, but and then she drops a stone in the well, and then she writes down the thing, and, and then she starts the generator, and it's this whole routine, and it happens. Basically, the film is just the routine happening over and over again with variations. 
Right. Well, that's what the idea, right? You're conducting you're conducting this research. You're looking for variations. You're looking, and and it, and it, so for the first forty five minutes of the movie, she writes down no change, no change, no change, no change, and then there's a change. There's lichen on the flowers, among other places, and so there's this shift. And but then she continues the routine, but now with this whole other angle where we're like, what? It, it brings in this dramatic element that isn't drama in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, this is such a strange and unique script, and I think even more so than Bait. And, and I loved Bait, but I think it has a more traditional story. And Ennis Men, you know, how do you put this? It, it, it's moving around in time in really strange ways. Uh, he has a way. It gets into a time loop. In it gets sense. into a time loop, yeah, which I haven't totally sorted out, but because it works impressionistically and through image to give you kind of this. It, it's not a horror film, it's unsettling, but I, I was. It, it's not scary at any point. Well, she keeps seeing like future events, but then they kind of loop in the past. So like there's the thing that's in the the house. There's like a piece of driftwood that sort yes. of says, you're not sure if it says coven or something, but it's actually the canaveter or whatever that ends up on a May day. Which is the boat. Yeah, yes. that the guy visits her with the coat and, and that happens later. And then she finds the coat with blood on it, and that, but she finds it first and then that happens. <laughs> and you see this this girl that you're not sure it's her daughter or who she is and she's like appearing on like on the roof of the house and maybe it's her because of the scar on the stomach and then they show the accident that the girl yes. falls through and then it's clear well i don't know i shouldn't say the word clear but it's yeah, maybe it's definitely not clear it's maybe inferred that that was her <laughs> at some point but i think yeah. she's caught in some kind of weird time loop and i don't think we're really ever fully it's like David Lynch. He doesn't want to explain it for you, and he's not going to explain it for you, and he may not know himself. Yeah, so I would have been really disappointed if there was an explanation at the end of this movie. Because oh, yeah. Like, like I said, you know, my, my notes, this, okay, well, this is just poetry. You, you don't, like, tie up all the loose ends at the end of a poem. And, and in, in a large part, the meaning of a poem is the experience of reading it. And I feel that this is a, a, an experiential type film that you, you, you could analyze it. You can come up with themes and connections and you could probably come up with an explanation, but the value of the film is in submitting to that for 90 minutes and letting go your expectations and just letting these images and this just weirdness and the repetition of it uh it's almost like a piece of music right where you have motifs and uh these different movements and they sort of repeat and but evolve on each other it's yeah so anyhow really cool movie yeah and you know my wife and i we we just had a good time <laughs> watching yeah the film and uh, you know kind of joking around and uh but in good ways like the movie just made you yeah. just like i don't know we just it just it, we enjoyed the groove and the vibe. And so then we watched this bait movie, which um, much readily available. Uh, people can find it. And, you know, it's a story like the, the deeper story is really about Cornwall and this seaside town that is kind of the locals are really being taken over by... By tourists. By tourists and, you know, people looking to make a buck and wealthy people that come in and they don't really... Well, but they're summer people, right? They're, they're coming there in the summer and they're taking over the town and it's a fishing town and there's they're sort of losing what the town has been and it's in conflict with what the town might be becoming. You know, so it's like two brothers and their their father has died and left the boat to one brother who, instead of using it for fishing, which is the other guy's livelihood too, he's yeah. using it to take tourists out and about. And that's causing a rift because the one brother, now he has to like stretch his nets up against the rock and hopefully gets a catch. He's a fisherman with no boat who just <laughs> tries to catch some fish and sell them to save up money for a boat. You know, there's a story here and we could talk about that. Um, and, and I kind of enjoy that, but it's the experience, the way that this guy, Mark Jenkin, created this movie and shoots this film is kind of the real story. Well, it's just a really unique 
specific aesthetic. Like he's really going for something here uh, intentionally. Uh, yeah, I, I had mentioned about cleaning the camera. <laughs> Is that what you were going to say? No, no. That's why I'm, I'm when you when you're ready to have the secrets revealed, <laughs> I will tell you. I'm ready to have this because I'm watching it and I'm thinking, okay, this. Uh, particularly bait, you know, uh, with NS men, there's some hairs in the gate. There's some flashes. There's, you know, you can tell that it's, uh, analog, right. Uh, but bait is really a mess visually. Like if I recommended this movie to somebody and they watched the first five minutes, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they punched me in the face. Well, I'm going to punch them back. So, <laughs> Well, you have to be, I mean, you've been watching all these crazy movies lately, but you have, you, you have to go into this movie just being willing to accept this aesthetic choice uh, because it's not, it, it's like a scratchy old 38 RPM record. A, an online person actually referred to it in a weird way. They were like, and they didn't necessarily like it because they didn't think that, you know, the guy... People want to want to want a real juicy story and stuff, and they yeah. can't appreciate. But I watched this film. I had to do research. I was because I'm like, okay, if you wanted to make a movie like this, right, and you were trying to yeah. get this, a, a thousand directors couldn't have figured it out. And this guy, right. because of the nature of how he makes movies, he did something that is insane, and it's brilliant. And he couldn't do it. For for the reasons I'm going to tell you in a minute, he couldn't do that on Ennis Men because of it being a color okay. film. This guy, he shot a few thousand feet of film, yeah. right? It was very you know en en enough to make a 90 minute movie if you're going to three to one. So he had he had right. about four and a half hours of footage, right? All these 100 rolls, okay? Yeah. He has a lab, his own lab. He hand processed the film himself. What? But it gets better than that. He had to hand crank each reel through the developer on these reels. Wow. It took him like wow. 13, it took him like 30 days or something to do it. So as you crank, occasionally to make sure it was like in a warm developer bath, which gives it an extra, yeah. it gives it an extra grain. And that's probably also where he told the lab to do that with the, the color film. So it probably gave right. it. Um, a, a pushed, you know, when you push film and do you yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. remember we're going back, but remember that Garofalo movie we made and there was the one role that we knew was going to be, it was, it was at night and it was yeah. dark. So we, we told them to push it like two stops in the lab and they yeah. fucked up some of the roles, but they got that one role right. And in the look of it, even though most of it was ruined, the stuff that was available was insane. Was insane. Yeah. And so that's the thing is these film techniques that nobody ever thinks about because you you know you were putting money down. Well, they the don't line. exist in digital, right? You, you but I mean, if you're putting digital. money, but but they never did it in film because if you if you're putting the money on the line, you can't risk something happening. This guy didn't care about the risks. He didn't care if the footage didn't look right. Who would ever tell somebody to take their negative and hand roll develop it yourself? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so what would happen is he had to check sometimes. So he would open. He'd have to right. check it open. And that would create some flashes, right? Plus also the inconsistency in the rolling created weird effects. And right. then he rationed all of the dust that sometimes it's more in others is that the fibers from the clothes he was wearing got in. Right. Because he's not in a sterile environment. So he's not little, in a totally clean room. Yeah. Yeah. So think of the developer bath may have gotten little particles that yeah, and he yeah, says, yeah. instead of being afraid of that stuff, he embraced it. And then he said something weird is that there was a day where he thought some pollen had gotten in and it created these weird, like there's like a, like a one brief scene where there's like some speckles and things. That yes, I was wondering, I was, I was wondering about that because it almost looked like an optical effect. It's like all this environmental conditions went in and and just knowing that maybe even appreciate this movie even more because <laughs> yeah. it's like because you couldn't do like any whenever we see all those speckles and scratches well it used to be optical effects now it's digital you know it's always in that digital pattern like it it doesn't look realistic it looks like somebody put a layer on it that's why i think people are responding like it was a big hit for an art film in uh the uk oh it got amazing reviews yeah if you're a young film goer and all of you seen, 
are digital movies and maybe an occasional thing. You haven't seen a brand new movie out that has this look and you're wondering how the hell did someone achieve this? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, I was thinking that, well, uh, you know, of course, I've, both of us have shot a lot of 16 millimeter film. And so I immediately knew what it was. But, you know, I keep using the word analog. These are analog movies. and They are. And there's something really, particularly on Ennis Men, which takes place in 1973, it almost looks like the film could have been made then. I mean, he was definitely going for that. I think that it's funny. I zeroed in on one thing that I felt like was too modern. I felt uh, that her boots, while they may have made those boots, I felt like the soles of her boots were do not too, were like not of those yeah. stuff. That would that's just my own weird thing, and I just said. But otherwise, it looked like it was something from seventy three. He does really like showing shots of people's boots. Uh, there was a lot of that in bait too. <laughs> I think he. So this is my thought, and I guess we'd have to have him here to tell us. But because he's shooting with such little footage, yeah. He doesn't have a lot of coverage, and he needs these little insert shots in order to get him from place to place and cut between stuff. There's lots of those little insert shots, and they're kind of fascinating. They, uh, yeah, some of them work really well. Some of them are an insert shot from within the scene, like somebody pushing, handing somebody a dollar or something, right? Uh, but some of them are insert shots that are from a totally different scene in a different location. So like he'll be doing something and we'll cut to a shot of a different character's refrigerator and then back to that scene. So he's sort of doing this parallel action between all these different stories, but to use them as inch insert shots, as opposed to pacing out, okay, we're in this story now, now we transition to this story the way, you know, a traditional Hollywood film would do it. This is like, th there's one scene where there's five characters in this bar in Bait. Uh, I'm glad you're going back to Bait because he does something else that I thought was very interesting there too. Oh, this is where the, 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 the kids are having a fight. And the other two, and it's back. Yes. I loved it. That's just such a great way to take the scene like that. Yeah, I've never seen it done like that before. And it was basically, the other thing that's interesting is his eye lines are all over the place. Yeah. But I think that's intentional. And I think it allows for some of these insert shots um, because he's not totally interested in orienting you spatially. And so like when they're all having that argument, it's basically uh, just headshots. Uh, cutting back between headshots of people talking and they're all basically looking towards the camera. Uh, yes. And, and so, and so it doesn't, it, it doesn't orient you spatially. Like I said, you, you, you're just hit with these different lines of dialogue from these faces and you're sort of trying to put together who's talking to who. And it makes for a very interesting viewing experience. You were saying about the, the bar, um, there's the waitress, uh, her, her character's yes. name is Wena Kowalski, and I, I thought that was a really good actress. And there's this thing that happens with a pool ball. Was it the cue ball? Or, yes, and, yeah, it's and, the cue uh, ball, yeah. And they do this thing where suddenly there's a flash forward, and you're kind of confusing. They're showing, like, these hands and cuffs, and it's like, wait a minute, that girl's not cuffs. Like, what's going on here? And yeah. then, then the incident that's going to lead to that, like they're showing the stuff that's going to happen afterwards before it happens in a weird, like little right. flash. And it's again these, and then, but I'm like, oh, like it's triggering something in me that I'm like, oh, something is going to happen. And then it happens. Yeah. And it's just, I just like, the guy's very inventive. <laughs> I just like the way he's telling a story. <laughs> and I, I would need to watch it again to figure this out. But that scene you're talking about a few minutes before it, I thought there's going to be some violence soon. And I like, it just seemed like, but then the, the violence that happens, uh, there's two violent scenes and neither one is anything like what I expected the violence in the movie to be. And yes. then another scene, uh, and then another scene, which you think is going to be violent ends up being totally nonviolent at all when he walks in with the lobster pot. My wife and I were discussing that, and it was so interesting because it, it creates a dialogue. If you're watching it with somebody, you can have a dialogue, and it was like, yeah. it, it was almost like he is telling that kid that it, it, rather than threatening him for stealing his lobster, 
Yeah. He basically let this kid know, don't steal my lobsters again. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. But he does it in a way that's like, it's threatening, but uh, (laughs) non-threatening. He's just a very interesting character, that guy. And I, I think... As a character study, it works better than Ennis Men. Like, I'm not really sure about her character. Uh, it's more of just the experiential sensory experience. But uh, Bait has much more of a traditional story. Well, there's actual dialogue in that one. Um, and there's, spare, there's very little dialogue in Ennis Men. Yeah, almost. Well, it's mainly 90% of the movie is her alone. There are little bits on the radio, but... I feel like... A good double feature with Ennis Men would be the Lighthouse. I totally agree. <laughs> I, th- I I think they're actually very, and that occurred to me too. Um, that yeah, they they have a lot in common. Both being these movies of people out on an island. Yeah, and then there's another movie you haven't seen, and it's really hard to see. And I was lucky that I think it was Canopy or something that had it at the time. It may still be on Canopy. It's called For the Gamma, and. It in a weird way oh, yeah. has a similar thing where somebody's out there studying this like mysterious thing, and it's it's mostly this one girl and the the environment, and not a lot happens, but it, it's really weird. And I kind of liked it, just like Ennis Men, except for Ennis Men has way more style. Wait, we may be discovering a subgenre. What environmental horror? Uh, yeah, with one person alone, w- one character out in the environment. Yeah, that's like, um, was it that Bruce Dern movie there when he's out in space? Yes, uh, Silent Running. Yeah, that's a whole different subgenre. Yeah, that's that's, that's the, the lone, lone person in space. <laughs> yeah, a whole different genre. <laughs> that and Moon together. Although Silent Running may be a crossover between the two genres because of the environmental exactly. angle. But I mean, I, I you know, I, why why do these movies appeal to me? versus some others I, I couldn't tell you but i liked ennis i thought ennis men it, like if some of the films i've seen on that bfi list this movie should be on the bfi list compared to some of those uh so what i was going to say is that i'm really looking forward to this guy's next movie and ennis men just came out this year so it's going to be a little while before we get him to uh hand crank out another movie i know i want well uh, and you know what <laughs> i want to see him like i don't want to see him ever do not feel like i think that what he's doing and using film and I'm, you know, me, I'm a huge proponent of it because yeah. again, this shows you Ennis men. Sure. You could have filmed that story on digital, but the power of the movie comes from the filmmaking technique, which is on film. Absolutely. It shows you yeah. how film can be used in a way that digital cannot be. I mean, I keep coming back to like, you know, a uh, vinyl versus a CD. Yeah. That's kind of the difference here, right? That there's something more warmer, more organic. It includes everything. There, <laughs> Digital just has that. I don't know. I, I, so many movies lately, I've just, I can't take the digital because they're not lighting it correctly. It's too crisp. There's not enough depth there. Yeah. I mean, I understand the desire to make a film and, you know, it's so hard to get anything financed today. And so digital can like give people a chance to make a film but so often i I watch the result and i'm like wow why did you even want to make this movie like there's nothing cinematic about it so that was my other question is how does he edit does he use a a steenbeck flatbed or something no now there there you know hey look it's faster to edit he gets a 2k um, okay that's what i was wondering so it's edited and, and and honestly, as much as I am an analog person, I actually think that that makes sense. Editing is it's just, you know, doing it digitally. That's a tool. It's fine. And yeah. if you were like well, a long-term. Because you don't notice it. Yeah. There's no way for the audience to know whether it's cut by hand or digital. I have no problem with that. Um, now, I thought before we end this, you might be interested in Mark Jenkins' top 10 list for the BFI. Oh, he, 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 yes, he got to submit. Well, he's also a professor, so he got to. Right. um, Yeah. But I think that it, it tells you a little bit about the filmmaker and the kind of movies he's made. And I don't know all the films on this list, but some of them I do, or what I've read about them, it makes sense from the kind of movies he's making. And this I get from the kind of 
way he edits, like the jumping around and stuff, he mm-hmm. put on his top 10 performance. Okay. Persona. Nice. Movie you haven't seen, I did, and it's amazing, L'Argent. Okay. That's a, that's a Bress, Bresson's yeah. last film. A movie that's on Criterion uh, still, I haven't gotten all the way through it. It's minimalist, and I can totally get what he sees in it, is this movie called Radio On. Okay, yeah. Uh, a film called Uzak. I don't know it. Don't know it. A movie called Salam Cinema. Don't know it. A film by Agnes Varda. I think it's a documentary, Daguerreotypes. Okay, yeah, I've heard of it, but I don't, yeah, I've seen it like in her filmography. That might get to the whole way he shoots films and that texture piece. A film by Derek Jarman called The Garden, an early film from like the early 70s of his. I don't know it. Huh. A movie, uh, it's a pseudo documentary involving um, the Vietnam War. And this sounds kind of fascinating by this director, Peter Watkins, called Punishment Park. Huh. I kind of want to watch that. This is a really interesting list. It's, yeah, see, I have respect for this list because it's interesting choices. And here's one that I, I did not like. You know, Bill from Queens is a big fan of this. And yeah. I, of course, saw a VHS copy, and maybe I need to see a, a, a big widescreen. But it was it's highly influential for him. It's called uh, Big Wednesday, John Milius. Oh, I have not seen it. Yeah, and it's you know it's about surfers and stuff, but it was big for him right. because you know he grew up in in a seaside community and right. he didn't know much about like surfing in the beaches of of, of L A. or California, and okay. So when he was making the list, his I don't know his wife or his partner, she said to him, "Well, well." what about big Wednesday? Why is that not on your list? And he's like, he's like, well, that's kind of like, it was like a flop, big budget studio movie. And she's like, but you watch it three or four times a year. (laughs) She's like, there can't be anything more influential to you than that. So he's like, you're right. I'm going to put it on there. Okay. Well, this, that's really interesting. He clearly has, you know, a, a, a philosophy and an aesthetic philosophy behind what he's doing. And so I'd be curious to see some of those films on his list. Well, that's why I mentioned it. And I got this list because I, I think I want to try to see some of those movies now. Yeah. <laughs> well, he just has such, uh, I mean, like you said, the camera doesn't move. It's <laughs> sometimes his frame is not quite right. And it, 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 and, and I like that, right? Uh, there, there was one scene where it was just like, uh, in bait where they're she's showing the couple into like the airbnb or whatever and the shot is like half the door and half the window and so you see just half of people and 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 i liked it it just seemed uh it reminded me of of that thing in uh visions of light have you seen that uh visions of light movie i know you have the uh cinematography movie yeah 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 yeah, and there's this part in it where they're talking about uh, the scene in Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, where where like where he shot it, and the guy's like, "Well, that's not frame; you can't see it." And he's like, "Yeah, I want people to look around." <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's what I'm. And so I think like there's some of that going on in this film, these films too, where there's stuff outside the edges of the frame that you're that that's contributing meaning to it. Well, also, I mean, he's shooting with this wind up Bolex, and in the first film. He, he, he was shooting with just a like a, a, a one prime lens. My right. question is, and I don't know, I don't know that camera. Is, is it one of those where you look in the camera through the viewfinder and you don't see entirely what you're going to get? Oh, is it parallax or is it mirror? I, that's yeah. a great question. It, it would depend on the model, I, I guess, because I think Bolex made both types of camera. Because I have, I still do, I, I have a wind up camera. Um, and it's really yeah. like, it's the kind of thing that you would have used in, I think it was, it was like a World War II, like a little tiny, like wind up thing and you hold it with your hand. It was designed for that type of shooting. Yeah. I've, I've got about five of those. And you shoot and you get an approximation of what you're going to get, but it's kind of like, it's a fun mystery. <laughs> it's a fun, it's a fun mystery. But these movies, why I like them is that it reminds me what I love about film. And it's the first time watching these things made me feel like, 
I had to look like after saw NS Men, I was looking up like how much does it cost to like shoot some ectochrome? <laughs> like right, it's yeah, really expensive because you you get like a, you can get like a package where they'll send you it and then and then a processing and digital scan, right? Like to shoot a hundred feet of ectochrome, uh, double sprocketed sixteen, which is what I would need for my camera. The whole thing would cost me about two hundred and fifty bucks, and that's two minutes. Wow. And that's like, that's to get it and process it and get a scan, you know, that I could edit something, but that's still like, you know, it, that's not, uh, it's out of reach to make a movie. Like, even if you make like a 20 minute movie, it could cost you a thousand bucks or more. A few thousand. Yeah. Well, I mean, wow. I'm just like, if you were doing it like this guy, really figuring out what you were going to shoot and just shooting that. I'm curious to see some of his shorts now, knowing that they're shot on film. Yeah, because he shoots the some of his shorts are eight eight mil, uh, super eight. Oh, that's cool. Okay, it just got me excited about filmmaking again in a, in a weird way. I have a tornado warning. Oh well, that's great because uh, Teal's got <laughs> a tornado timing. warning, so it's time to go. So, all right, buddy. Um, <laughs> hey, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And again, you can go to our past episodes, stuffweseen.com, and uh, we're also on Instagram. So, you know, feel free to drop us a line, as I've said before, Jim and Teal at stuffweseen.com. See some stuff, everybody, and uh, search out Ennis Men and Bait if you're interested in some weird stuff with some cool film techniques. (laughs) Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay, we'll go and uh, hide. I'm going to hide. I'll see you later. All right. And if I don't see you again, I guess the tornado got you. <laughs> got <Bye>. tornadoed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dude. That was fun. Yay. See ya. Okay. Bye.